good. There we go. You can tell Doug I was here and leave that part out. Uh, tonight we're looking at John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Looking at chapter 17 and 18, actually. And I've entitled this Prayer and Sacrifice. Because as you look at John 17 and John 18, you find a prayer and then you find the sacrifice of Christ beginning. We know that in John chapter 18 that we have Christ being betrayed by Judas, him being bounced around courts and before judges illegally, even during their time, and then being taken to, ultimately to uh, take the place of Barabbas is where you end chapter 18. But we're going to get to that in a moment. Chapter 17 is a prayer by Christ Really, it begins with his prayer to God, and then it goes to his disciples, and then it goes to all the world. And so I want you to turn your attention with me to John chapter 17. And we're just going to be walking through this this evening. John chapter 17. And in this chapter, we begin by looking at verses 1 through 5, where we have Christ praying to the Father. He prays to the Heavenly Father in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, where he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so we find here his the time has come, as we see in verse one. We find from the tone and what Christ is saying that he knows that the ultimate reason he come he has come is the beginning is just around the corner, so to speak, as we find in chapter 18. Then we find in verses 2 through 5 that he has done what God had sent him to do. That was to do what? To seek and save the lost, right? That was his whole purpose of coming to earth, to seek and save the lost. And he says he has glorified, he has sent, he has done what he was sent to do in verses 2 through 5. We think about this, we must have the same focus as Christ did. You'll notice in verses 1 through 5 that Christ's prayer focuses, as we're going to see here in a moment, on obedience and also unity. Look again at verses 1 through 5, where he says there, in verse, looking at verse 4, excuse me, back at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, and with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We know what Christ was doing in verses 1 through 5. He has finished what God has sent him to do. But as we progress through this, and especially in verses 6 and following, we'll see that he is, his prayer focuses on the disciples and all those who would come to be followers of Christ, to be obedient and to be united in the truth. Now you think about that, we must have the same focus that Christ has and that He had exhibited here in chapter 17, which was obedience to the truth and unity in the truth. That is being united in the truth. In John chapter 4 and verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. That was the goal and the mission of Christ, to fulfill the reason that God sent Him. Now, for Christians today, what is God's will for us? Well, we know in Ecclesiastes, we read about how we are to fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. But we look in the New Testament, we find that really that same idea repeated, to do the will of God, to keep His commandments, and to what? To bring as many people as we possibly can to heaven with us. The Great Commission, go yogi into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes what? We shall be baptized, all those types of things. Matthew chapter 20, I'm doing a little bit of mashup there. Mark chapter 16, right? We are to go and to preach to the lost, teach them the truth. 
And in reality, that's where it stops for us. Because we cannot force someone to obey the gospel, can we? But we are to give them the ability to hear the truth and to respond. Unity in, tr- in truth, as we look here in John chapter 17, is indeed unity in truth and not unity in diversity. If you look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, Philippians 1 and verse 27 says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. They are to stand together in the same thing. Now, think about that for a moment. It used to be, you maybe still see them somewhere, the signs used to say, you know, this Sunday attend the church of your choice. You don't find that idea in the Bible. Definitely not in the New Testament. You don't find it in the Old Testament. You know, we remember in the Old Testament where God says, I am the one true God. There is no other God. You know, I know another God besides me. We find that in, in throughout the New Testament the same idea, Christ being the Son of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life, singular. And so there's no other way, there's no other truth, there's no other life except through Christ. So that doesn't teach diversity or unity in differing opinions or differing beliefs. There's only singular found throughout the New Testament. And we look again there, Philippians 1 and verse 27, he says that you may stand fast in one spirit, one mindset, as he goes on to say, with one mind striving together for what? For the faith of the gospel, you stand together in the same things. Philippians 2 and verse 2 says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Again, not diversity, but unity in the truth. Now let's go back to John chapter 17. And let's pick up in verse 6. In John chapter 17, picking, picking up in verse 6, and most Bibles have a heading something that's similar of Christ prays for His disciples. And that is very generic, but it does fit very broadly what Christ is going to pray about here, beginning in verse 6 and following. It begins in verse 6 by saying, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now question, how were the disciples and the apostles given to Christ? It had to be by obedience, didn't it? They weren't literally giving over to them. They weren't born with the idea stamped on them. They're going to become apostles or nothing they can do about it. No, they had to obey. We had to do certain things. You find that same idea throughout the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. No one was ever born saved. We are born innocent. We are born prone to sin because we are mankind. We make mistakes. But we are never born saved. We're never born lost. We make the decision to do right and wrong. And we find here in verse 6 and following that these individuals were kept, notice in verse 6, and they have kept your word. That's why they belong to Christ. Verse 7 says, Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me. Notice even Christ, as he points out there in verse 8, only taught what was given to him by God. He too showed submission to God the Father. It wasn't his doctrine, as he tells us in other places in the New Testament. My doctrine is not my own, but it's his who sent me, referring to God. And we find here the same idea in verse 8. He says, For I have given to them the word which you have given me. And they have received them, that's what made them belonging to Christ, and have known surely that I have come forth from you, that they have believed that you sent me. Do you remember in John chapter 6, after Christ was preaching about the idea they'd have to you know, eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, referencing really you know, the, the, these Lord's suppers we know today. Then in John chapter 6, about verse 66, verse 60 through 66, you had a period where some disciples went, went back and walked with them no more. About verse 63, 64. Well, then we get in verse 66, Christ asked the question of Peter in about verse 65 and says, Do you also want to go away? What did Peter say in verse 67? 
Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the word of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why when we get to verse chapter 17, Christ says they know who He is. They know exactly who He is. Does that mean they do not falter? No, that's not the case at all. Because mankind has free will, we make mistakes. And we're going to see that in chapter 18 with Peter who would deny Christ three times, right? It's hard to imagine a man like Peter who walked on water to go to Jesus denied him three times. That tells you the pressure that others can have upon us. Even during the lifetime of the disciples and the apostles. Walking the water to go to see Christ on the water. And you fast forward a short period of time and he's denying him three times. Even after Christ told him that he would, right? Now let's back up to verse 9 of John chapter 17. I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now Christ makes a difference here in verse 9. He's not praying for the world on this occasion. He actually would later when he talks about he prays for those who would come to, to believe in him because of the word of the disciples. But here he's focusing on the disciples. The word disciple literally means a learner of Christ. And so they are, by being a disciple of Christ, they are a learner of Christ. And so he's praying for them because we know after Christ leaves, in fact, really, from the time that Christ gets ready to go to judgment, to be you know, put before the judges and the kings and those types of things, you kind of see a glimpse of the disciples in a little bit of a panic mode because they're not sure what Christ is talking about. But from Acts chapter 2 moving forward, you have men who were very bold. In fact, you have men who were petrified, asking in chapter 1 of Acts, you know, basically they didn't want, Lord to, want Christ to return to heaven. And he told them, if I don't return, the helper will not come to you. And then in chapter 2 moving forward, they are preaching and they are teaching and they're being brought before leaders like Peter and others. And they would proclaim the word of God and stand up for it. And so much so that even the leaders would recognize, as the Bible says, that they had been with Jesus. But in chapter 17, he's still praying for them because he knows that they have a lot to endure. And in chapter 18 is really where it begins for the disciples as far as endurance because Christ is taken away to be brought before judgment and then to the crucifixion. And so he's praying for them fittingly here in chapter 17. In, chapter, in verse 11, excuse me, verse 10, he says, And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. You notice Christ still refers to them as belonging to God, not just to Him, but to God. Christ is constantly giving glory to God. All throughout His life. In fact, numerous times before He would perform a miraculous action, He would pray to God. Remember what He did before He fed the 4,000 to 5,000? The Bible said He stopped and He prayed to God. Showing what? That he was still in submission to God and that the power and authority that had been given to him on the earth came from God. Now, is that a lesson for us today? Absolutely. Christ was the most humble man to ever walk the face of the earth. He had the power of God, all authority had been given to him on heaven and on earth, but he kept giving glory to God. Look at verse 11. He says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. Meaning he's not going to be in the world very much longer in all reality. But they're going to still be in the world. they still got to put up with temptations and hardships and persecutions and a lot of pressure really from all sides. He's saying, I'm leaving the world basically, but they're going to have to stay here. Now I'm no longer in the world. He references it like he's no longer going to be here because his time's winding down. But these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. May be one in what? In the truth. In the gospel. If they weren't united, wouldn't everything just kind of fall apart? If Paul went off preaching, you know, the Pauline doctrine that was different, he would create his own denomination, wouldn't he? If Peter went off and teaching the Peter doctrine, well, he'd be creating a denomination. No, they are to be united in the truth. 
singular. There's only one. The Holy Spirit came upon them and spoke to all of them, and the same truth that was revealed to Paul was revealed to Peter and all the other apostles. They all had the same thing. They were to be united as one, as we see in verse 11. Verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, a reference to Judas, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. That's the only reason he was lost, for a purpose of fulfillment of Scripture. Now, was it determined really ahead of time that Judas would be the one to do it? No, it seemed that his personality, his character, he fit the bill. And so he fell into be the one who would betray Christ, as we read about here in a moment in chapter 18. And so we look at all this, he continues to pray for his disciples. We go back here in John chapter 17, and let's continue looking at verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Does Christ want them to have joy? Joy everlasting? Well, absolutely. You know, when Christ talks about how the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy, what does He say next? But I've come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Now, He's not talking about material things. He's talking about life beyond this one. But in all reality, does, does the Christian have the better life than those of the world? Well, yes, because the Christian, if you really put things in perspective, the Christian doesn't worry about buying material things to impress others. Christ tells us what? That, you know, the abundance, you're, they're basically, I'm going to paraphrase, life is not consistent, the abundance of things he possesses, there we go. Meaning material things are not the most important thing in life, right? Paul warns Peter about how those who have erred from the truth because of the love of money and pierce themselves through the many sorrows, again, the love of money, well, what's the world concerned about? Money? Materialism? But what is Christ concerned about? Our soul. Remember what he's talked about, how uh, the Old Testament tells us that God sees the heart. Man sees the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. He sees the inner man. And that's what the Christian has to be concerned about. And so for that reason, a Christian does have the best life because we're not worried about the same things that the world is. We're not worried about keeping up with everybody else. We're not worried about having the newest and greatest thing of everything. We are only focused with pleasing God and bringing other people to heaven. Now, when I hear that, I think that should be a big burden lifted off our shoulders because that's what the world's pushing down upon us, right? We see it on television. We see it in movies. We see it in magazines. We hear it on the radio. All these things, the newest and greatest. In all reality, let's be honest, is one phone different from the other? That's a big thing anymore, right? I mean, don't, don't misunderstand me. I have a lot of gadgets in front of me, but one is not that much different from the other. And the point I'm making is that's not the end-all, be-all of our life. And that's what Christ meant when He told us there in the Gospel accounts about that, he, that we may have life more abundantly. And He goes back to this same idea here as you look at verse... Uh, verse 13, His joy may be fulfilled in them and themselves. The joy of what? Doing the will of God and only being focused on those things. Verse 14, Have given them your word again. Your word, not His word. You ever heard someone say, Well, my preacher says. Doesn't that just burn you up? Because our response should be, Well, what does the Bible say? Don't worry about what your preacher says, or let's be accurate, your pastor says, right? What does the Bible say? You know, it's sad that that upsets people when they hear the phrase, what does the Bible say? Because in reality, isn't that why the Bereans were known as being more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica? Because they searched the Word daily to make sure what they were hearing was what was so, was accurate. And so we find here now, in verse 14, Christ says, I've given them your Word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. They're not like everybody else. Just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So don't take them out of this world, but just keep them from the evil one in reference to Satan. Verse 16, They are not of the world, 
just as I am not of the world. In verse 17, a verse you've probably heard many times, right? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify is the idea that we are made right before God. We have our sins purged from us. We are sanctified and made pure and acceptable in the sight of God. And that happens when we obey the gospel. And we find here in verse 17, that's what he wants them to do. He wants them to continue in his truth that has sanctified them. Verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now you think about that idea of sanctified myself. Was Christ pleasing in the sight of God? Absolutely. You know, sometimes skeptics can think we like to jump to where Christ is praying in the garden for, his, for the cut to pass from me. But you remember how many times you hear the phrase, not my will, but your will be done? That was the difference in everything. The anguish you see there in Christ is, yes, the physical, the cross was coming. But also we know, the Bible tells us, that He would bear, as we see in Isaiah 50, uh, 53, He would bear the sins of all mankind on His shoulders. Now, we think about that. We think about Christ bringing the sins of all mankind. Sometimes we think about just today, right? We think about the 1900s. We think about the time which we can remember. No, Christ bore the sins of all mankind going back to Adam and Eve. And He would bear the sins of all mankind who would still may come in the future. And we wonder why we read about how Christ calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God cannot look upon that much sin upon His Son. He would die on the cross, bring what, bearing the price of sin for all mankind. And He would go to the tomb, but He would not stay there. Conquering death, as the Bible tells us there in Genesis chapter 3, and crushing the head of Satan and bruising his heel. Now we look here in chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. We find that Christ has prayed for His apostles. We find that they are given the same doctrine that we teach today. In Jude, verse 3, the Bible says, uses the phrase, "...contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints." The same faith, the same doctrine we still have today. We teach and preach the same things. You ever have someone ask you, what do you believe? How do you respond to that? Well, what I want to know is what well, we believe in, you know, some kind of defining it in a very denominational term really is what they're looking for sometimes. But how do we respond to that? We'll go to the New Testament. You'll see what we believe. What Christ has laid out for us, that's what we believe and that's what we teach. It's interesting sometimes because that's not always good enough for people. You hear, well, what, what, what do you believe? I know what the Bible says, which really means they don't know what the Bible says. But what do you believe? My response is this. I believe that we do not do what the Bible says. We will pay dearly. That's what, we, that's what I believe. Because I look at the Bible, I see no other way to do things except God's way. Christ warns us about what happens if we deviate, doesn't He? We go back to the Old Testament, we find, we find warnings about do not go to the left hand or to the right. We go back to, to, to the book of Deuteronomy with Moses. He warned people about that. Don't go to the left, don't go to the right. You stay right with what God has said. We go to the New Testament, it hasn't changed. We find warnings, we'll talk about here in a moment, in Matthew chapter 15 with men and their doctrines. Let's go back to John chapter 17, and let's pick up in verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone. So now he's not just praying for his disciples. Now he's broad, he, he keeps broadening his prayer. First it's praying to God about what he has done. Then he prays his, about his disciples. Now he's praying for all those who may believe in him. Many headings say Jesus prays for all believers. That's really not the case. He prays for all those who may become believers. Because let's be honest, there's a lot of believers in the world today, aren't there? Everybody's a Christian, right? I mean, go talk to their neighbor. Oh yeah, we're a Christian. Yeah, their car is always there on a Sunday morning. I thought you were a Christian. That's, to me, that's the most basic, simple thing to show that you are a believer, as the world would put it. 
So we look at what Christ talks about here His prayer in verse 20 moving forward. It's for those who would believe in His name. Not all quote-unquote believers. Because we go back to the gospel accounts, there are those who believe in Christ who will not uh, confess Him lest they be thrown in the synagogue for the love of praise of men more than praise of God, right? So they believed, but they didn't really act upon it. They didn't act upon it. So we look at verse 20 of chapter 17. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What is their word? The truth, as we've seen already, that they are to be united in, the truth that comes from God, not from man. That they all may be, now notice, one. How many times have we seen that word one already in chapter 17? Several times. One, 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 one. How many churches are there in the Bible? One. How many churches should it be today? Well, there's still only one. We have a lot of other things out around us. There's still only one church. There's still only one faith. Look at verse 21. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. They also may be one in us, united with what? With God, with Christ, in the same doctrine, the same teaching, the same faith, being of the same mind, the same fellowship. That the world may believe that you sent me. Now, the last phrase of verse 21, I think, is very important. That they may believe that you sent me. Why do we have to have Bible tracts and lessons about why there's so many churches? Why do we have to have those things? Because there, there's a lot of people who are, a lot of groups who are posing as a church, aren't they? You know, we look here at verse 21. He reminds us that what brings people to God and what causes them to believe in God and believe in Christ is the obedience to the one singular truth. And that truth, he says here in verse 21, is a main cause for them to believe, as he says there in verse 21, that the world may believe that you sent me. Why? Because they're all teaching the same things. Why do Christians sometimes get labeled as hypocrites or get labeled as uh, being frauds? Now, there's no perfect people in the church. But let's be honest, the real problem with that is our denominational friends who are causing a lot of confusion today. You, know, you think about the, the road to heaven. Have you ever been out on the road in the early morning and there's fog on the road? We live close to, to Lake Ulaga there and go in and clear more in the morning. There can be fog just all over the place. You can't see anything. And to me, that's a great way to describe denominational doctrine. It clouds the road so you can't see it. You don't know which way to go. But when you move all that stuff away, like we get later in the day and the fog starts lifting and starts going away, you see clearly how you're to go. Isn't that what happens if you move, move away from all the denominational ideas and creeds and traditions and things that have been passed down? All that fog lifts and you say, hey, that's the way I need to go. I mean, I need to turn around. I mean, I need to get back on the road I'm supposed to be on. I made the wrong turn. When we lift all that other stuff out of the way. Verse 22. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Again, that the world may know. How? They're all teaching the same thing. How much better would the world be if you went from one congregation to the next, and they all taught the same thing? How much easier would it be to reach out to people? Why don't you do this over here and they do it over there? Well, today we got to explain, well, this is what the Bible says. Well, why do they do that? That's a good question. I don't know. I have ideas. I have opinions about why they do things. But why deviate from the Word of God? See, the Bible brings us back to where we ought to be. But sin always takes us to places we don't need to be. and keeps us there longer than we ever want to be. And we find here in verse 23, again, the truth is what is used in such a way that the world may know that you have sent me. Verse 23. 
Verse 24, Father, I desire that also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. What did Christ just say? I want them in heaven with me. I want all believers, all mankind to become believers and to be in heaven with me. Look again at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me, gave me how? Through the obedience of the gospel, may be with me where I am. Where is Christ? Well, He's in heaven. That's where He wants us. He desires for all men to be saved. We know as we think about what Christ desires from us. We look at Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Luke 19 and verse 10, we have the very simple statement of, you know, we have companies that have mission statements. Well, this was Christ in Luke 19 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That was it. That was his goal, was to seek and save the lost, and by doing so, he would be fulfilling the will of God. Now let's drop back to chapter 17. He says there in verse uh, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. He wants them to be with him and to be what? Be able to enjoy the glory of Christ. To enjoy His glory, the Father's glory, and to also be with others who have put on Christ, right? Galatians 3, verse 27. This means we're baptized into Christ, to put on Christ. He wants all those individuals to be with Him in heaven. Verse 25 says, O righteous Father, Father the world has not known you. But I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Now, when I read verse 25, it seems to me that Christ wants them to know God like He knows God. He wants them to have the understanding and be able to start to even begin to grasp the love that God has for mankind. If you were to say which verse was the most popular verse in the Bible, what would you say? Probably John 3.16, right? Because everybody knows that verse, right? Even, even the drunk standing around can probably quote you that. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That verse reveals God's love for us. In the book of Romans, Paul talks about how God demonstrates His love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. And so we find again God's love demonstrated for us over and over again. And Christ tells us there in John 17 and verse 25 that He wants His disciples to have the same love and same grasp of God's love for, him, for them that He has. You know, Christ know, knew what the love of God was like. He wants the disciples to know what it is. Isn't it ironic that, not maybe not ironic, but when you get into chapter 18, they start to see what the love of Christ is as He's taken away? Oh, you know, all this really, in my mind, it kind of builds right up to Christ being taken away. Coming to the earth, doing all those things He's supposed to do, praying for His disciples, showing His love and concern for them and for all mankind, and then going to the cross, as we would say, putting His money where His mouth is, right? Saying, this is how much I love mankind. Look what's about to happen. Verse 26, he says, I have declared to them your name. Again, not my name, your name. And will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Now you think about that. Does Christ want mankind to be saved? There is no doubt that he wants mankind to be saved. And so as we look at chapter 17, we have Christ saying, I've done what you sent me to do. We have Him praying for His disciples, and we have Him praying for all those who might become believers in Him. Now we get to chapter 18, our, last, our second and the last section for our study this evening. What begins to happen as we look in chapter 18? The Bible says in verse 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with the disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. What happened? Verse 2. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas 
was going to arrive. So depending on how you want to view it, you could view it as him waiting there or him just them coming up. The Bible reveals, I think, in other gospel accounts where it seems as Christ, as he comes out of the garden praying, that he began to see the soldiers and Judas approaching. And now we find in chapter 18, he's just prayed for all mankind. Would that include those who's coming for him in chapter 18? Absolutely. Verse 2, And Judas who betrayed him also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And that tells us a little bit of insight about Christ, that that garden where he prayed was not a one-time occurrence. He was there often. You might say it was kind of where they just met to pray or to study, whatever it may have been. Judas knew, knew they'd been there enough. He knew that's a place you could start to look for Christ. Now, we, we look at chapter 18. We're not going to go through this verse by verse. We look at verses 1 and 2. We find Judas betrays Christ. Verses 4 through 7, they come looking for Christ. And we find that Christ asks the question, Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for in chapter 18? Now, if you look at this in chapter 18, beginning about verse 4, uh, excuse me, about verse 6, Now when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Verse 6. Now some commentators, historians say, well, maybe they stumbled back, maybe they fell back. It doesn't matter. When Christ told them, I'm the person you're looking for, I am He, it frightened them to some degree. Now think about this. A little thief who they're looking for, would that happen to them? Are they going to fall back to the ground because they say, I'm the thief you're looking for? No. Christ had enough, you might say, popularity. He was well known enough throughout the region because of his teaching and the preaching and things he had done, that when he told them who he was, it startled them. Now, they, they may not have been terrified of Christ, but it doesn't seem they were exactly jumping at the gun to arrest him. You don't fall back to the ground if you're just eager to, to arrest somebody. What do you do? You pounce on them. But instead, in verse, verse 6, the Bible says, they drew back and they fell to the ground. They had a little bit of fear in them. But now we know Judas. Isn't it interesting the Bible doesn't say Judas did that? Isn't that why, perhaps, part of the reason why he fit the bill to be the one who betrayed Christ? And we know we read about Judas. We read about him later going back and, and trying to return the money to the, to the priest and those types of things. And they're basically just saying, you know, we're, we're done with you. We got what we wanted. And he throws the money down. He leaves and goes and hangs himself. Judas at least had some remorse over what he did. But others involved in the crucifixion and the judgment of Christ had very little. The Bible doesn't reveal that anyone else, apart from maybe Pilate, who seemed very withdrawn, tried to withdraw himself from it. But others, what? What do we hear so many times as we read about Christ being before judgment? You hear a phrase being shouted, don't you? Crucify him. That's what you hear. You don't hear them drawing back and falling to, to fall into the ground. They didn't fear Christ. They hated Him. And so what happened in verse 6 is a bit of a surprise because it's not really what we expect when they come for Christ. And so they asked again, He asked again in verse 7, Who are you, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And He said, I have told you that I am He. Therefore, if you seek Me, let these go their way. You notice what, you notice what Christ just did there? He just pardoned His disciples. Let them leave. Don't touch them. Don't, you know. By him saying, let them go their way, he's saying, don't harm them. Just let them go. I'm the one you're looking for. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke. In verse 9, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant ear, and cut off his struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, isn't that typical, Peter? To me, you have two different guys in Peter. You have him pr pr prior to chapter 2 of Acts, and you have him after Acts chapter 2. Because before that, now he's not perfect after that, but before that, what do you have? Christ rebukes him to his face. He cuts off a soldier's ear. He says, I'll never deny you. And it all kind of blows up in his face, doesn't it? Because he's very zealous, but he doesn't stop to think things through. Because we really find in the next few verses that Christ kind of warns him about violence, doesn't he? He who, who lives by the sword will die by the sword, right? So don't be doing that, Peter. That's not what we find in other religions today, is it? Christianity is not a religion of violence. It's a you live by the sword, you don't die by the sword. Put it away. 
But we also, as we continue reading, do you remember that when Peter was denying Christ, who one his accusers were? As a relative of the soldier whose ear he's cut off, as we'll look later. When the relatives of this man came and accused Peter of being a follower of Christ, because he says, I saw you with him. It was the third time that Peter would deny Christ on that occasion. And so we look here in, Luke, in John chapter 18. Verses 8 through 11, Christ shows his concern for his disciples. He asks his request in verses 8 and 9 to, to send them away. Verse 10 and 11, he warns Peter about living by the sword and dying by the sword. And then verses 12 through 40, you have really Jesus' trial and appearance of four leaders. We have he is bound, and we're, like I said, we're going to outline this. But we, he, has, he is bound, he's taken away in verses 12 through 14. Now, historians will talk about the time of day in which this took place. Some say it was late evening, some say it was really early morning. Either way, it was illegal to take, have a trial during those hours in which they were doing it. Today, it'd be like saying, well, you know, usually we have a court, court time during, at 9 a.m., but we're going to do it at 2 o'clock in the morning. You'd say, no, wait, something's wrong. That's kind of what happened to Christ. Being legal and doing things the right way, well, that went out the window. And we read about how they brought false witnesses, and they found none, and finally they... Paid, some, paid someone enough to get them to come and make some kind of false accusation against Christ. And on and on. Over and over again we find errors in which were made purposefully throughout the entire trial of Christ. We look at verses 19 through 23. We have really where Christ is bullied. Where He responds and He's hit. He's smacked when He responds to, to someone about who He is. We look at verses 24 through 32. He's put to the test in unfair hearings and unlawful hearings. He's taken back and forth to various uh, law officers, priests, and things such as that. And then in verse 33 through 38, it's really where I want us to pick up our study of John chapter 18. Because in verse 33, you have a conversation between Christ and Pilate. Now, Pilate was no perfect man. The Bible doesn't reveal anything about him being a good man or anything like that. Him trying to be a friend to Caesar and things such as that. But when it came to Christ, his tone and his manner in which he tried to handle him was a little bit different. Do you remember what happened to the wife of Pilate? How she had a dream about Christ? She actually comes and she warns Pilate, says, have nothing to do with this man. I've suffered many things in a dream tonight because of him. Read that there, I believe, in the book of Matthew. Well, he had to do something with him because that was his job, right? But look at verse 33 of John 18. And then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? saying, Are you asking for yourself or for others? That's a good question. Who are you asking for, Pilate? Do you want to know, or you just want to know what others are saying about me? Pilate entered, I, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world, and my servants would fight. So that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Christ saying, Look, I didn't come here to overthrow you. That's not why I'm here. Because that's really a lot of the problem we find throughout Bible times is leaders being paranoid. Herod came after, coming after Christ as a child, Paranoid. He's psycho and he's paranoid. He came and he what? He said, oh, fine, you won't tell me where he is? Kill every child under the age of two. That's not a normal person. And so we find here when Christ says, are you asking for me or for yourself? And he says, look, I'm, what, my kingdom is not of this world. Verse 37. Pilate said to him, are you a king then? Now, much like some of us today, we confuse, are we talking about spiritual things or not? Well, Christ is talking about spiritual things. He says in verse uh, 37, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so, what do you say he's a king of? Of the truth, really. And who are his citizens? Those, he says in verse 30, uh, 37, Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, listens to me. He's a king of who? Of the Christian. Look at verse 38. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And we had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. 
Isn't it interesting, so many things, so many sermons and articles have been written about the, the question that Pilate asked, what is truth? One thing we know is that Pilate didn't wait around to hear the answer. What is truth? It's kind of like you find a man who's just discontent. What is truth? And just dismisses it and walks off. You think Pilate had been exposed to idolatry, to idols and false gods and all these other things? Absolutely. And so he says, what is truth? Is the idea possibly he's thinking that all of some of these things we see out here, they're not really the real deal? We can speculate. We don't know anything more than that. But we do know he did not yet know what truth was or what he ever. Why else would he ask a question? Verse 39. The Bible says, here Pilate speaking, But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Now, other gospel accounts who refer to Barabbas as a notorious criminal. Some say he was a thief and just an evil guy he did not want out. But we find, as we close this chapter... That's who would take the place, that's who would get freedom while Christ was put in to be, as we'll find here shortly, to be scourged. Now you think about chapter 17 and chapter 18. Christ prays for all mankind, prays to God, prays to the disciples, prays for all those who'd come believe in him. Chapter 18, he begins being betrayed and he goes to. Uh, Take the, to be the one who would take the place of Barabbas. When we back up, though, we'd find also that within chapter 18, <clears throat> in verses 15 through 18, we have where Peter denies Christ the first time. And then in verses 24 through 27, he denies him the second and the third time. Isn't it interesting for us today, sometimes we say, being the Monday morning quarterback, to say, oh, I would never would have done that. Do you think Peter knew that if he, if he remained strong that he would die, perhaps? Very likely. John was beheaded, wasn't he? Why? Because, some, because he told a king, you cannot have this person for, to be your lawful wife. He was put in prison. Someone else brought in their daughter to dance for him. It pleased him. What do you want? We want that man's head. And that's how, that's how he died. Christians died all the time. They were placed in Colosseums as one to be what? Put before gladiators, put before lions. We find that even in the Old Testament. We look at history. We talk about how Nero would use Christians. He placed them on poles outside of his palace and set them on fire to light the pathway to his palace. Christians died all the time in Bible times. So when Peter denied Christ, was there fear? Absolutely. Because he was pretty determined for him. And that's why he said, I'll never deny you. That's why Christ said, oh, you'll deny me three times. Because Peter was convinced, I will not do it. But he did. What are some lessons for us today from chapter 17 and chapter 18? Our first lesson is we should pray for the same things that Christ prayed about. Christ prayed for mankind despite knowing what the future held. Look at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 and verse 31 says, And he began to teach, teach them the Son of Man, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Mark 8, 31. Christ prayed for his disciples and loved them and showed concern for them, even knowing that he would die a gruesome death. Crucifixion was known and still held as being the most horrible way to be killed in Bible times. People were beheaded all the time. People were drugged by horses all the time. You know, hung up on things all the time. But to be crucified, that's why Pilate says, what has he done to be crucified? We can just kill him, but to be crucified, that was recognized as a special, intense type of killing. Because it wasn't just killing, it was torture. To hang there and to die after being beaten. But nonetheless, the Bible tells us that he prayed and showed love and concern for his disciples and for those who just might, might believe and obey him. Our second thing we can learn is, is that prayer and sacrifice of Christ were selfless and our lives should be as well. Christ lived a very selfless life, meaning he did not come first. We read about how he had washed the disciples' feet. Now, I don't know about some of you, but I know out in the summer heat, 
our feet can get pretty rank, and we got socks and shoes on. You imagine they'd be like out in sandals and, and having dust and dirt, and you're walking out, and you walk in someone's house, I'm going to wash your feet. Well, not just being anyone, it being Christ. A true servant. One of the most lowly and humble jobs he did to the, for the disciples, showing what? They were to be servants. And today we are to be servants as well, serving first Christ and the Father. We look at John chapter 4. We know that Christ never sought His own will, but only the will of the Father. John 4 and verse 34 says, Jesus said to them, my food, is not to, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. My food. Isn't that an interesting way to describe doing the will of God? It's what I live to do is what He's saying. It's to do God's will. Now ask yourself that question. Do you live to do God's will? Isn't that what Paul talks about when he says, It's no longer I who live, but Christ liveth in me. I live to do the will of God. Look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Here we read about the idea of how our lives are to be those in which we sacrifice to God. That is, we do things, we serve God as our sacrifice to Him. Romans 12 and verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service. Where did Paul write most of his letters from? From prison. And he's talking about presenting yourselves to God as, as, a, as a sacrifice. It's your reasonable service. And he's saying that from prison. Most of his letters and his writings and teaching was done from prison. If anyone could say, look, this is, your, this is a reasonable service, Paul could do it. No one else at that time was, was in prison long term like Paul was. Now as we close this evening, we should know that as Christians we are to follow Christ's example in everything. In 1 John 2 and verse 6, the Bible says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. To walk just as he walked. That means we do things in accordance to the example that Christ left us. And what was Christ's example? Do the will of God. And that starts with obedience to the gospel, doesn't it? And then moves forward to trying to help others have the opportunity to obey the gospel so they too can have heaven as their home one day. So you think about John chapter 17 and chapter 18. We know that Christ is selfless. We know that He is loving. He is caring. And He seeks to save the souls of men, and so should we. We use sometimes what's called an acrostic. We use the word joy. J being Jesus, the O being others, and the Y being yourselves. Isn't that how we should live our life? Christ first, Jesus being first, others second, and yourself last. That's exactly what Christ did. Only God was who came first for Him. And then it was others in the form of the disciples and those who believe in Him. And then lastly, Himself, and He showed that by going to the cross for all mankind. So we look at John 17 and John 18, we find the Son of God as a humble servant who cared and continues to care for all mankind and continues to love all mankind. And it's an example of which we can follow. So this evening as you think about these things, we can encourage you in any way. You think about all that Christ has done for us, ask yourself, what are you doing for Him? That's going to be saying, sing the song that's been selected.